namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami I was looking at the questions that we didn't answer and quite a few of them are about getting old and not having the energy and how does one uh, practice, how does one sustain the practice um, at this stage of life and just as a reminder because we did this reflection all of us are subject to old age sickness and death and I remember at different chapters of my life thinking, oh, it's, you know, I still got 30 years or 20 years or, hmm, (laughs) seven years, you know, one year, one day. It's really not known. And we we, we don't have control. And we can see um, that if we live an unskillful life, even if we live a long time, it can be a hell realm. So it's not the length of life, but the quality. And why should we waste any time to upgrade the quality of our life? Even if you're 15 or 20, I don't know if there's anyone that young here, but um, what an amazing gift to yourself and the world to take these instructions to heart. So this is... I want to emphasize, frequently recollect. And the Buddha's instructions are, we listen to them, we, we, we practice them a little bit, we get some results, and then we get drawn back into our busy lives. And the first thing often that we don't pay attention to is our practice. So tomorrow is our last full day together. And may it not be the the last. Um, A few years ago, I I gave a death and dying retreat and led um, the group in a death meditation. We can't do that tonight because there's no room. It's good to do it when everyone's lying down and can really uh, model the, the preferred position for dying, I guess. One can die in any any posture. Standing up, I guess, is... Yeah, it's possible. You just fall over. <laughs> or you, you fall down. But even if we fall down, the body can fall down. The body can die. But the real death that we can do beforehand is the death of anger the death of greed, ill will, 
the death of delusion. This is the death that we need to practice. To practice dying of the body is not really what I, I was trying to guide people in. But I try to practice it at night when I go to sleep. You know, lie down and imagine that I'm lying in a coffin. I'm in a box. Or I take a corpse position or think of the body as a corpse and lie there scanning the corpse and seeing the skeleton, visualizing the bones, visualizing the body parts and the, the withering if you, if you ever sat with somebody who's dying, then you would see the process. Um, in some monasteries, monastics have the opportunity to go to a morgue and uh, look at dead bodies and or um, witness an, an autopsy. I've never seen an autopsy, but I have been with a mortician What's it called? Embalment, yes. I actually assisted in an embalment twice. And when this was one of the nuns that died at Amaravati in England uh, about 24 or something years ago, and when he came to do this embalming, he asked for two volunteers, and I stuck my hand up right away, but I was scared. I didn't know what it would involve and I didn't know if I would feel nauseous and make a fool of myself. And So there were two nuns that helped him. I don't know why the bhikkhus didn't volunteer. but Oh, I know why, because it was a female, right? It was a female body. <laughs> yeah. So um, actually, no. The first, the first one was a laywoman, and the second one was uh, uh, she'd been a nun. She was in her eighties. So um, it was the most wonderful teaching. It was just incredible. I have to say that the second that we did the one person twice because it was in the summer, and I found the second procedure really kind of violent because a lot of liquids were being removed. But he did it with so much compassion, such gentleness. I actually acted as the the signing mortician for one of those people. We had to bring her back from the hospital. And uh, one of the Anagarikas, one of the female Anagarikas, drove the monastery van through the streets of London with this body wrapped in a sheet in the back, hoping that we wouldn't be stopped. <laughs> and we, we, we did, as a community, have the privilege of um, caring for these, these um, bodies and these beings, these old friends of ours, and um, both of them were buried, one in each of the monasteries, one at Chitters and one at Amravati. And the monks made the coffin, both coffins, I think, 
and we we went through the whole process of carrying the body and placing it in the ground and chanting and so it's a, it's wonderful to participate in that and with the both of the bodies we sat and reflected for with one of them with Alina we've reflected for weeks and also with Upla that's right I remember having to place her body into the coffin and because she was elderly and quite hunched it was quite it was a bit rude because we had to compress the cover onto her face and and I was apologizing to her but of course it's empty there's no one in there it wasn't like we were being mean you know by just trying to get her into the box so just to to deal with Death, viscerally, is very useful. It teaches us about the emptiness of this frame that we use as a vehicle. Like, uh, if you have a car, and you, you your car is all shiny, and it has no rust in it, uh, the upholstery is in new condition, then you like to take people for a ride in the car, and they... But if it's a beaten up old jalopy from the 50s or 60s, maybe people wouldn't like to ride in it. But this vehicle, no matter how old we are, and if the mind is still intact, if the mind can still even stay on one object, we need not remember the past. We need not be able to even conceptualize the future. But if we can stay present with the breath for a moment, we have enough faculties to practice. We don't have to um, redo our professional knowledge and show all our certificates and awards and degrees to everyone that comes over. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to hold up this frame as if it was 30 or 40 or 50 years old and you know, make the hair a certain way if you have any. <laughs> and wear your best dress, clean. Keep it clean and, and tidy. And I feel very fortunate to wear robes because it's the same thing every day. Same color, same style. And I also feel like I'm wearing the dress that the Buddha offered. This is the clothing that the Buddha wore. So every day when I put the robes on, I feel like this this is my skin. And no matter what the other skin looks like, this particular covering, I like it to be held up. Like this is my my mantle or my, my shawl towards enlightenment. It point, points me in the direction of Nibbana. So if we have reminders like that which are visual and regular, every time, I don't see many samanas, so being here with Lungpo Suchito and with Ajahn Jayanto are so delightful because I see the sons of the Buddha. And for me, the Buddha is alive in them. Actually, he's alive in all of us. 
when I walk into the room every day and I see people sitting there, this, these, we are like facsimiles, visually, of what the Buddha and his disciples did. We are the living disciples. And if we hold ourselves up that way, it doesn't matter how old the body is. It only is important how the mind is applying itself and leaning in the direction of Nibbana. And of course, as we get older, we lean. <laughs> so nature is calling us to, to incline. And if we have the refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we're inclining in a good direction. And of course, then he gives us tools. So, I wanted to, I wanted you to hear the voice of the Buddha. So I brought, I had, uh, you know, about 12 suttas to read. (laughs) But if I could get through one, that would be very, very lovely. And this sutta is, um, is one that um, the Buddha read, the Buddha spoke in, to Ananda after Venerable Sariputta died. Now, of course, Sariputta was the right, you know, the right and the left was Sariputta and Moggallana, the two great disciples of the Buddha, foremost disciples. And Sariputta was considered the foremost in wisdom. And um, I'll read it to you and then we'll try to reflect a little bit. But it's so touching because Venerable Chunda, who was a novice, but he was already attained, came to report to Venerable Ananda, who still had not completely awakened, about Sariputta's death. And then you'll see how, how it unfolds. Thus, by the way, this translation is a new one that I only discovered recently. This book was just offered to me as a gift, and it's by Venerable Analeo. So it's not Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, and it's based on Venerable Analeo's comparison of the Majjhimanikaya translation. Sorry, this is from the connected, the kindred sayings, the connected discourses, Samyutta Nikaya 47. Chapter 47, number 13. And um, it's from both the Samyutta Nikaya translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, it's there, but it's also Venerable Analyo's studies of the Chinese Agamas. So there are a few extra paragraphs in here or sentences that do not appear in the Theravadan version. In case you wonder... (laughs) <laughs> I'm not making it up. <laughs> Thus have I heard. At one time, the Buddha was dwelling at Rajagaha, in the bamboo grove, the squirrel's feeding ground. At that time, the venerable Sariputta was dwelling in Magadha, in Nalakagama. He was sick and about to attain Nibbana. The novice Chunda was looking after and taking care of him. Then, because of his disease, the Venerable Sariputta attained final Nibbana. 
nirvana. Then the novice Chunda, having taken care of the venerable Sariputta, taking what was left of his bodily remains after cremation, and carrying the venerable Sariputta's robes and bowl, approached Rajagaha, having put away his own robe and bowl and washed his feet, he approached the venerable Ananda. Having paid respect to the venerable Ananda's feet, he was a novice, right? He withdrew to stand to one side. He said to the venerable Ananda, Venerable Sir, please know, my preceptor, the venerable Sariputta, has attained final Nibbana. I have come bringing his bodily remains and his robes and bowl. When the venerable Ananda had heard what the novice Chunda had said, he approached the Buddha. He said to the Buddha, Blessed one, now my whole body is as if it were falling apart. The four directions are as if they had changed their order. The teachings I learned as are as if they were blocked off. As the novice Chunda has come and told me, my preceptor, the venerable Sariputta, has attained final Nibbana. I have come bringing his bodily remains and his robes and bowl. So Ananda was very shaken. The Buddha said, How is it, Ananda? Has Sariputta attained final nirvana and taken away the receiving of the aggregate of precepts? Has he attained final nirvana, nirvana and taken away the aggregate of concentration? Has he attained final nirvana and taken away the aggregate of wisdom? Has he attained final nibbana and taken away the aggregate of liberation? Has he attained final nibbana and taken away the aggregate of knowledge and vision of liberation? And Ananda said to the Buddha, No, blessed one. In other words, has he taken away your precepts? and your ability to practice samadhi? Has he taken away the wisdom that you've realized? Has he taken away the potential for liberation or the knowledge and vision of that liberation? Then the Buddha said to Ananda, the teachings I declare, having myself known them, on attaining full awakening, that is, the four establishments of mindfulness, and we've been um, speaking about these, the four foundations or bases of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind states, and mindfulness of phenomena, of the qualities of, of the mind, of what the mind is knowing. The four right efforts, the effort to cultivate what is unwholesome, what is wholesome, and to abandon what is unwholesome, and 
to prevent what is unwholesome from arising and to encourage what is wholesome to arise, to cultivate what is wholesome, to uh, promote. So these are the four right efforts. The four bases for supernormal power. The five faculties. The five powers. The seven factors of awakening. The eightfold path. Has he attained final Nibbana and taken these away? Ananda said to the Buddha, No, blessed one, although he has not attained final Nibbana and taken away the receiving of the aggregates of precepts, the aggregate of concentration, the aggregate of wisdom, the aggregate of liberation, the aggregate of knowledge and vision, of liberation, the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases for supernormal power, the five faculties, the five powers, the five, the seven factors of awakening and the eightfold path. Yet the Venerable Sariputta was virtuous and learned. He had few wishes and was contented. He continually practiced seclusion with energetic effort and collected mindfulness, dwelling at peace with a unified and concentrated mind. He had swift wisdom, penetratingly sharp wisdom, transcending wisdom, discriminative wisdom, great wisdom, pervasive wisdom, profound wisdom, incomparable wisdom. He was endowed with the treasure of knowledge and was able to instruct, able to teach, able to illumine, able to delight, and well able to extol when teaching the Dharma to assemblies. For this reason, blessed one, because of the Dharma and because of those who receive the Dharma, I am sad and distressed. And the Buddha said to Ananda, Do not be sad and distressed. Why do I say that? What arises, what occurs, what is constructed, is of a nature to be destroyed. How could it not be destroyed? That which arises has the nature to cease to pass away. We just, this is our frequent recollection right here. What arises, I'm going to repeat it, because it's, this is so good, drop by drop, it goes in deeper and deeper. Otherwise, we just have a concept of it. We don't fully imbibe, and allow this to soak into our consciousness into every cell of our being so that we walk around with the awareness of the impermanence of all conditioned things. What arises, what occurs, what is constructed is of a nature to be destroyed. How could it not be destroyed? Wishing for it not to be destroyed is wishing for what is impossible. I have earlier told you various kinds of things and agreeable matters. Everything for which one has thoughts of affection, all of it is entirely of a nature to become separated from one. 
all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. This should be reflected upon again and again. Frequent recollection. I have told you various kinds of things, agreeable matters, everything for which one has thoughts of affection. All of it is entirely of a nature to become separated from us. One, we cannot keep it forever. It is just like a great tree with, with luxuriant roots, trunk, branches, leaves, flowers and fruits whose great branches break first. Sariputta was this great pillar of the Dhamma, rising up beside the Buddha himself. And he was the first to, to break and fall down and die. What a beautiful simile. It is like a great treasure mountain whose great peak collapses first. It makes me think of Mount St. Helens, that when it, it is a volcano in Washington State, and some years ago, I believe the peak of it just blew apart. When I was a little kid, my parents drove us there, and we saw that mountain, but it doesn't exist anymore. A whole mountain, just blown up. So nature is such a teacher to us. In the same way, in the great community of the followers of the Tathagata, of the Blessed One, the great disciples attain nirvana, final nibbana first. In the direction in which Sariputta dwelled, in that direction I had no concerns. Because of Sariputta, that direction was certainly not empty for me. The Buddha, when he had his mind go to the direction where Sariputta was, he had no worry at all because he knew that Sariputta was there and it was not empty for him. Now, Ananda, I earlier on purpose said to you that whatever there is of various agreeable matters for which one has thoughts of affection, all of it, is of a nature to become separated from one. It is, as I said earlier, therefore, Ananda, do not be so very sad. You should know that soon the Tathagata will also be of the past. The Buddha is telling him in advance, I too will pass. I too am of the nature to die. Therefore, Ananda, you should have yourself as an island. By relying on yourself, you should have the Dhamma as an island. By relying on the Dharma, you should have no other island, no other reliance. 
This is a very wonderful and profound instruction to us. What is it that we can hold as a refuge? If we practice, if we take the Dhamma into our hearts so deeply that in the time of losing whatever there is to lose, even our own bodies, our minds will not be shaken because we will have created for ourselves an internal, interior, indestructible refuge that we can rely on, that will not die, because we will have been able to die to our anger, our greed, and our delusion, our confusion, our distress, our shakeability, our weakness, our vulnerability, our, our fear, our negativity, our afflictive emotions, our traumas, all of it. The moment of death is a doorway. It's an, a, it's an opportunity to let go completely. Even if five minutes before we're still, but if we remember the teaching, we, the island will rise up inside of us. It is our one point. We only need one point for the mind to rest on. An island. A Dhamma island. And then Ananda said to the Buddha, Blessed one, how does one have oneself as an island by relying on oneself? How does one have the Dharma as an island by relying on the Dharma? How does one have no other island no other reliance. The Buddha said to Ananda, this takes place if a monastic, and I will say if a disciple, establishes mindfulness by contemplating the body as a body, internally, with energetic effort, with right mindfulness, and with clear comprehension. That is clear understanding of what this is. Overcoming desire and discontent in the world. No longer being pulled by the sense media, by the five senses and, and thought. No longer get, getting dragged around, distracted by, just as Lungpo Suchito has been instructing us all week. We establish mindfulness by contemplating the body as a body externally, so internally, now externally, with energetic effort, with right mindfulness and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. So overcoming our desire, our hunger, our thirst for sensual gratification, knowing the gratification has its danger and its downfall, its drawbacks. Or having discontent because it can never please us fully. So both of those, the resistance, the running away from the world, the fear of, the attraction to the world, the engagement with the world, the distraction in the world, in any form, externally, Establishing right mindfulness and clear comprehension, 
overcoming that desire and discontent in the world. We establish mindfulness by contemplating the body as a body in both internally and externally with that kind of energetic, energetic like, this, you, you, you know this is urgent. It's not like, yeah, we got years, decades to do this. Suddenly the years pass or you get sick. You can't come to a retreat center. You don't have anyone in your family around you to support your practice. You lose your job. Anything can happen and you feel distraught and distressed and how, how then will we develop this island of Dhamma within us in the middle of conditions that are not supportive for establishing freedom from distress, freedom from grief, freedom from sadness, freedom from fear, freedom from discontent. With energetic effort, with right mindfulness and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. And in this case, just to point out, um, sometimes the five hindrances are intended, but only the first two are mentioned, but it's a little abbreviation. It's like a um, quite a common Pali phrase. You mentioned the first two, but it really means all five hindrances. One established mindfulness by contemplating feelings as feelings internally with energetic effort, right mindfulness, and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. So that means greed, hatred, restlessness, sloth and torpor and doubt. Restlessness and anxiety, right? Sloth, torpor, exhaustion, boredom. Some of you mentioned boredom today. Doubt, very difficult to overcome doubt. If you have doubt, how can we establish right mindfulness, right effort, energetic effort, clear comprehension in the mind? And clear comprehension means that we know the the noble truths in the very moment that we are establishing our mindfulness on the body, on feelings, on mental states, or on the awareness of the hindrances, or developing the seven factors of enlightenment in the mind. If we're assuaged by doubt. So we need to really be aware of the first noble truth, their suffering. Somebody asked actually, why don't we look at nice things? Why do we always look at suffering? Why don't we focus? Actually, because when we look at suffering, if we're aware of suffering, suffering is our teacher, and immediately we can understand this is suffering. If we don't understand it as suffering, because samsara, engaging in samsaric delights, we become blinded so easily and we think, hey, this is great. This is where my happiness lies. But this is not an island of refuge. This is not something we can truly rely on. So if we understand the truth of what we're experiencing, that's the first noble truth. Then if we know the origin of that suffering, we can abandon it. And if we abandon it, then we bring that suffering to its cessation 
at that moment and we know the third noble truth and we really wake up to our ability to bring our suffering to an end in little incremental steps. These are tiny breaths of waking up and they're cumulative. It's like a a Dharma account. It's the most valuable, it's the greatest treasure we can develop. So then, as we're doing that, we've that's the first noble truth, the second noble truth, the third noble truth. We develop it, develop it, continuously, regularly, repeatedly, recollecting the four noble truths. We develop the path, the quality. What was the quality in the mind that helped me to understand that moment of suffering, to abandon the cause of it, to de- develop, to um, bring it to cessation, knowing the danger, we abandon it, and then to develop that quality again and again and again, rather than to be distracted by beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, uh, tactile sensations, and even the most thrilling, exhilarating thoughts or documentaries that go on in the mind that we keep downloading. (laughs) One establishes mindfulness by contemplating feelings as feelings, externally, with energetic effort, right mindfulness, clear comprehension, overcoming the five hindrances, desire, discontent, etc., One establishes mindfulness by contemplating feelings as feelings both internally and externally with energetic effort, with right mindfulness and clear comprehension. Notice this is um, satisampajanya and it's also satipanya. So it's mindfulness and wise discernment, clearly knowing our state, what's our condition, how we got into it, how we can bring it to an end in that very moment, and what is the quality of the mind that we, what presence of mind did we bring to that wholesome activity that helped us to develop the the path and stay on the path in this way, and we keep developing that. We grow it. It's like after you meditate and you have a really wonderful experience where your mind suddenly feels free of all these burdens of the whole week. Many of you have started to experience that a little bit. The freedom is growing, the sense of ah, breathing, easing, opening in the body and the mind has been happening. So you feel uh, a sense of that the path is working. It may not be working in the next sitting, but if we review, well, how did that, what, what was it, where did I focus the, how did I focus the mind? What was the quality of my attention? What was the quality of my mindfulness, of my effort, of my wise seeing, of my ability to stay with a mind stable and undistracted and still and listening in silence? and completely surrendering to the present moment. How did I get into that and repeat that? We review 
and try to follow those little footsteps again and again, repeat them, and bring up these recollections to encourage ourselves, to coach ourselves using the Buddha's own words. Not, we put them in our own words, but not to forget them, not to forget our little Buddha toolkit, our awakening toolkit, and quickly search, where's the hammer? I want to knock that kilesa, that defilement on the head. <laughs> or where's the, the pliers? I need to really pick it up and put it outside the mind. Sometimes we have to be a little forceful. I know. No, you can't. This is, this is my heart space, reserved for the Dhamma. This is how we create an island of Dhamma. We keep the hindrances out. And we develop the seven factors of enlightenment. I'm never going to get to the second sutta. There's the seven factors of enlightenment. Sati, a sharp, continuous, diligent, ardent, burning up the defilements, mindfulness. And then investigation, dhamma-vichaya, which keeps probing and studying what, what is the mind present with, what companion is accompanying us to our lean, in our leaning towards nibbana. Is there a little bit of laziness? A little bit of self-indulgence? A little bit of ill will? Then we're on guard. This is heroic right effort, where we disperse the hindrances quickly so that we don't waste our precious energy. And we have to practice this. It doesn't happen in a day, a week, a month. It it might take a whole lifetime, but it doesn't matter. Because at the moment of death, we, we will have trained for such a long time with so much ardency that these seven factors of enlightenment, I only named two, then there's energy, <laughs> there's energy, then there's, you get some joy. Here's your beautiful, who was that asked that question? What about those good, joy? It's, joy is a factor of enlightenment. We've got to oil the machine with the joy, the metta, that goodwill. Goodwill is a, a quality of every wholesome mind state has goodwill in it. That's the good news. So we're constantly developing and cultivating goodwill on this path. And then we receive the benefits of these dynamic factors. We have this bliss, PT, this joy, and this calm arising in the mind, pasadi, where the, the relaxation the restlessness just abates. It's you ever look out at the sea on a calm day, your mind can reach out forever into in, into emptiness, touch the emptiness, the wilderness of the the empty ocean in front of you, and just wanders out into infinite space. So we create that that landscape of an empty mind. And from that naturally arises a stillness and a depth of stability. This is samadhi. 
And into that comes a balance, which is upeka. This is the seven factors. Upeka is the, the landing field for wisdom, or the ground from which our wisdom arises. It emerges. It's already, it's our potential. That's the awakening comes into that field. So, back to this sutta. It's almost, yeah. How are we doing? One, I, I use we instead of one, so we can really feel, this is all of us. We establish mindfulness by contemplating the mind internally as mind with energetic effort, with right mindfulness, with clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. And that's the five hindrances. We overcome them rather than being overcome by them. Our practice for much of our lives has been somehow, paradoxically, we get used to being overwhelmed and we, we think it's normal sometimes. I'm overwhelmed. We even tell each other, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, you poor thing. And then we kind of languish in that mode of overwhelm and then we have a nice latte. <laughs> but that, that does not result, it doesn't uproot. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it, has, it doesn't have a lasting effect. Because tomorrow, if we get overwhelmed, we're developing the habit to go for the calming, soothing, somehow it's a, a physical experience, it, it feels very warming and, and uh, comforting. But it doesn't comfort the mind. So our attachment to the body and to sense gratification has a good effect on the mind. It's like you know, even if you just drink the relaxed kind of tea, the herbal chamomile or something, it just for a few moments. And then next time somebody um, bullies us, we get triggered and we go into deep states of anxiety. Because for years we've repeated the bullying activity that has been thrust on us by somebody else when we were little and vulnerable. And so we've collected this mountain of fear in us and we don't know how to blow the top of it off. But we can. There's that, there is a volcano in there. Instead of having that explode in us and overwhelm us, year after year in our lives. And the older we get, the less we can contain it. And more and more, we need therapy. We need to go and see someone to help us. There is an island within us, an island of Dhamma. If we cultivate these factors of enlightenment and these four foundations of mindfulness and this, this ability to apply sati with all its uh, qualities of ardency, recollection of the dhamma, of the, the um, contemplations of the Buddha, the dhamma, the sangha, the training. 
And if we develop the four right efforts and the five faculties and the seven factors of enlightenment, all the bodhiapakya dhamma, all these factors that lead to awakening, that island will rise up out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there is our island within us that we can rely on. We can destroy, uproot, vanquish anything that had overwhelmed us in the past. We've already noticed that a little bit here, that our minds were overwhelmed on day one, but on day five, they're not. We've, we've become quieter in a week, less than a week. We become more interested. We're trusting the path a little more. More and more every retreat, we understand more and more. We're getting soaked in it more and more. We're um, discarding our old habits. Our life is transforming. Some of the friends that we used to have don't work for us anymore. That's okay. We want friendship with the lovely. Friendship with those that are skillful and that will help us develop our skillful qualities because this is the four right efforts externally in the world. The four right efforts internally and externally to rid ourselves of unwholesome qualities and to cultivate the ones that are already there. To prevent the unwholesome qualities that have not yet arisen from arising and to work on and develop more and more the the wholesome qualities that are not yet mature so that they reach their maturity. That means we want to grow in wisdom and compassion. We want to grow in sense restraint and contentment. We want to develop the seclusion of our bodies from worldly assaults and seductions and be a directed towards, inclined towards, and lean towards the freedom of the mind and heart. By holding dear these practices that support us, mindfulness, present moment awareness, these factors inward, and by keeping the company of the wise, by going on retreats, by studying the teachings, by listening to the Buddha's instructions day in and day out, reading suttas, reading the scriptures, reviewing them, downloading Dhamma talks, as I'm sure many of you do, and keep reminding ourselves, because we've been reminded of worldly things with so much media for decades. I remember as a kid, when TV was invented, and we had the first box in, in the house, and we, as kids, we sat in front of it. And our parents couldn't tear us away because it was so fascinating. And now the, these little four-year-olds come to the monastery with iPads. And, and I look at them and I think, this is not skillful habit. <laughs> this is not, not going to develop the factors of awakening in them. What are we doing to our children? People don't even talk to each other. They just talk to their devices. They should really be called vices. 
<laughs> because they are de- they devise an artificial world for us, and 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 then our whole life is contrived. We become bonded to these things, and we are slaves to them. Then we are overwhelmed by the. That's how we are overwhelmed by the world. But to have friendship with skillful people who know the Dhamma, understand the Dhamma, and are also inclining in this good direction, inwardly and outwardly. Keep that company. And when we keep that company, that develops in us friendship with the wise, and we become our own best friend. In the end, really, the Buddha is our best friend. And Buddha wisdom grows in us through that kind of noble friendship. So one establishes mindfulness by contemplating the mind as mind internally and externally with energetic effort, with right mindfulness, with clear comprehension, overcoming desire, discontent, restlessness, anxiety, sloth and torpor and doubt. One establishes mindfulness by contemplating dharmas as dharmas. These teachings, internally, with energetic effort, right mindfulness and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. One establishes mindfulness by contemplating dharmas as dharmas externally. with energetic effort, heroic effort, super, beyond what we think we can do. We can do more than we think we can do. Because the energy we get from practice is is uh, of of a quality that has this effect to increase our stamina, our thoughts, We undervalue, we underrate our ability. So that even if we're old, we can do things that we normally don't have the power to do because we're inspired. We're working from the belly, not from the head. From the whole body, it's a whole... If we're soaked through and through with the Dhamma, that Dhamma is uplifting us and moving us in ways that we didn't know we could move. By contemplating dharmas as dharmas externally with energetic effort, right mindfulness and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world, one establishes mindfulness by contemplating dharmas as dharmas internally and externally with energetic effort, clear comprehension, overcoming, right mindfulness and clear comprehension, overcoming desire and discontent in the world. Ananda, this is called having oneself as an island by relying on oneself as an island. Having the Dhamma, the Dharma, as an island, relying on the Dharma, having no other island, no other reliance, no other refuge. When the Buddha had spoken this discourse, hearing what the Buddha had said, 
The monastics, the disciples, were delighted and received it respectfully. The Buddha uh, also said, this was the Chinese version in the Theravada version, the Buddha also adds, he tells Ananda, those who follow my instruction on dwelling with themselves and the Dhamma as an island and a refuge will be foremost among those keen on this training and discipline. So that is what the Blessed One said, reflecting on his words again and again, again and again, to be surrounded by this, then we will not be overcome by grief. We may practice grief for years and years, but if we practice the Dhamma, then eventually we will see that there's nothing to grieve for except the real grief. The real grief is if we don't overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. Because if the body dies, then it's just following its nature. Do we want these orchids to last on the shrine forever? If we do, as I said the other night, we should get plastic ones. But they're not beautiful. The beauty is, is true nature, which is impermanent. There's a beauty in that. There's a teaching in that. When we see impermanence, we see the universal quality of all phenomena, of all worldly conditions. Even this whole world is impermanent. It's just a world. This universe is constantly changing, moving, evolving, growing, might explode. Who knows? What do we? What impossibility are we attached to? Why? Why do we grasp so grasp so tightly on these ideas when nature is giving us the most important teaching of our life in our own body and mind? Why do we keep dressing it up and distracting ourselves from the truth of what it's trying to tell us? But eventually, we can't hide from that anymore, and that's a good thing. If we can die gracefully, beautifully, petal by petal, or however, whatever our kamma is, then, then that's a teaching for those that are with us. Look at this. This is possible. I can do this. Then we can, in that moment, have the Dhamma as our island, our refuge, our true support to go beyond the disguise of the world, which is the skin over these bones and uh, composites of the body because they're all just passing through, flowing towards the elements, back to the elements, dust to dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, air to air, 
fire element, fire element, wind element, water, most of, how 98% is water. Look at the ocean and think, yes, just water element here. Maybe that's why we feel such a soothing sense, the ocean, the sun, all the elements are there, the sun, the wind, the breath going to the wind, space, element. So we see what we really are. This is waking up. Thank you so much for your attention. May we all realize Nibbana in this very life.